0: Design sprints are often uh, a way to really accelerate uh, a discovery process and feel like if you got an inkling of a thing there, well, like kind of like, will this dog hunt or not? And I'd much rather use really concrete designed artifacts even if the design is crude or unfinished or you click on something and it doesn't go anywhere we can say well what would you have wanted that to do what would you expect that to do it's kind of like a village that you see like in an old wild west town where like you just make the you make the facades of all the buildings but there's like no real general store behind it but you can get a
1: sense of like what it feels like this is finding your venture episode number six design a product your customer wants So I know it sounds really obvious that you should only build products your customer wants to buy, but startups and existing companies forget to do that all the time. It's because there's so much going on and so many things to do that they just lose sight of that one most important thing. And in this episode, we're gonna introduce the concept of user experience design and design sprints. Those are essentially the antidote to creating things that people don't really care about or wanna buy. The stories that you're gonna hear are from Matt McQueen. Matt and I recorded these at the Ithaca headquarters in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And Matt was the first director of product design at Coursera. He held similar roles at Google and Motorola, and he was a member of the Kleiner Perkins Design Advisory Council. Today, Matt is the VP of Product Design and Customer Experience at Ithaca. In this first section, Matt talks a little bit about how two companies that you're definitely going to recognize use user experience design to create innovative products.
0: So... Uh, there's a few companies that I think have really embraced product design and storytelling to understand their user experience and model things that are in advance of what customers want. And one of the things that I think is cool about successful startups or uh, entrepreneurial ventures are when they really can anticipate a new user need uh, and be there versus trying to invent something that's completely out of the... They could never have conceived and trying to sell something to someone who just... They weren't looking for that, right? I'll, I'll use kind of three examples of uh, disruptive startups from the Valley, and and they're pretty well known. Uh, the first is Uber. So as we looked at ge- people changing generationally from wanting to have vehicles and cars because cars equal freedom to one generation, now you know millennials and and younger are not. Uh, maybe cars might be expensive. Could be scary. Uh, require a level of cost, even when they're not using them to just the cars just sitting there. And the idea of transportation is valuable, but not like all the all the annoying and expensive parts of owning a car. So when you look at ride sharing services like Uber and Lyft, you know, they're imagining, OK, what is the customer's experience for someone who wants to just meet their friends? Not that far away, five, 10, 20 minutes away, not not hours away. What can they do in the ride while they're getting there, right? Can they be on their phone? Can they be, you know, sharing plans with friends? You can't do any of that when you're driving. You got to pay attention to the road, right? So Uber is a good example of of a company that has really thought about the rider experience and really, you know, I think increasingly generationally people would, would much rather pay for ride sharing services here and there if they're not like commuting long distances every day than deal with a car payment, the risk licensing and, and all the other things, right? So you can kind of have more fun as a user in a, in a, in a ride-sharing service uh, than you can as a driver. Uh, and that's like kind of one example. Another one uh, that I think really did a great job of customer discovery is Airbnb. So they started out as like, hey, how do we help people stay in a town when the hotels might be full or when you really want a more authentic experience, especially if it's like in another country or someplace that's unfamiliar to you. So their whole positioning is sort of like feel like a local, even when you're not, uh, you know, you don't want to go somewhere and feel like a tourist. Oh, I'm staying at the Hampton Inn or the the Hyatt, right, with with thousands of other people. You're like in a town or you're in, a na- in the cool neighborhood, not like in the city center um and they've really done a lot of discovery around why people want to travel so th- what's even cooler is they've started a uh through understanding their customers and sort of designing these journeys um and I think about it like storytelling right like here's a here's a story of some people that want to like go to barcelona for a week together right um and the Airbnb started this, in addition to space and, and the accommodations, something called Airbnb Experiences, which is like do glass blowing in Morocco or do these, uh, you know, nature walks in the Galapagos, right? Like if you're going to be there anyway and you're the kind of um, person who wants to have a more authentic experience, it's not just where you sleep that makes it authentic. It's what stories you bring home. Airbnb also kind of famously involved – uh, there, when we think about a customer journey mapping or like drawing, you know what the customer experiences, they used Pixar. Right, they have a lot of cash, right? It's well funded, but uh, you know, if you think about the best storytellers in the world. It's like it's it's the Pixar movies and the Pixar animators and the storytellers, and they they help them draw so they could get their whole company on board with like what is the best experience you could have when you travel, and and how do we bring that to life? So if you if you go into the Airbnb offices, you can still see on the walls like some of these keyframes and pictures of amazing sketches, and it's not that the fidelity is what matters; it's the meaning of it, right? It can be low-fi but high meaning so a lot of product design is about storytelling and drawing if you know from the customer's perspective what they want to experience in that in that product or service that's also a cool example of how they were already con- Airbnb already arguably dominating their space and disrupting hotels but now Leveraging their brand, which they spend a lot of care and attention, paying attention to their brand and and what they can do. They really just want one whole big concentric circle out from where am I sleeping tonight to what am I doing when I'm in Barcelona? What am I doing when I'm in an unfamiliar place? Well, I trust Airbnb of where I'm going to sleep that night. So there's safety. I would trust them to help put on a cool you know learn how to bake macaroons in paris you know with me and my four friends like the the trust is already there so like you said they're continuously innovating around how do we make
1: people feel like a local not just how do we find people a place to sleep tonight right Mm -hmm. it's like a level up in value okay so now let's zoom in a little bit in this next section matt talks about his experience at coursera and what you'll hear is how matt and his team used user experience design and design sprints to continue evolving the product suite to help the company grow.
0: I joined Coursera when they were about 60 people and uh, the organization was figuring out uh, online learning and I joined as their first uh, head of product design. And I think a lot of the work that we had to do at the beginning was, you know, it sort of started as like, hey, here's some Stanford courses online. And it, it changed us into need finding around like, what were people sort of quote unquote hiring us four, right? It wasn't like, I want to take a course. It was, I want to change in the outcome of my life or my professional trajectory, my career. Um, so some of the things that we sort of um, learned in the design and storytelling process was we started with courses that were kind of fixed on a calendar, right? They were like, just like you'd have on campus. It starts on, you know, September 7th and it ends on, you know, November 29th. And, and you kind of had these sign up periods of time that were pretty fixed and Um, You know, not surprisingly, we heard from learners that they might have fallen off or fallen behind and we needed to offer things that they could jump into at any time. We didn't want to make someone wait six or eight weeks till the next course comes out like this is online, just like with Netflix or streaming or Hulu. You can just sit down and start at any time. You don't have to wait till next Wednesday to see the next episode. So moving from a fixed schedule to on demand was kind of like one of the early uh, now, in retrospect, it's like duh. But like at the time, it was like, oh, we should offer this more, offer these courses roll in a rolling manner. Um, the other big sea change that we learned was sometimes one, actually often, one course isn't enough to like completely change your job prospects and outlook. And we created um, a targeted series of courses in a particularly thematic area called specializations, and that's where you go from I want to take a class in accounting or statistics or um, you know, how to be a people manager and actually extend it to a practice area. So it's less than a fully, it's less than a huge degree, but it's more than one course. And that's where you could really say, hey, if I took this specialization at Coursera, um, I now have much more, uh, these these courses link together, There's a, there's almost like a field of practice in them. Uh, Some of the things that we were doing to get to specializations were, I remember doing uh, like design sprints in kind of a big room where we had boards on the wall and we're tacking up pictures of what the students are thinking and doing at these different times. And we had to really create bridges from one course to another, right? What we wanted to say was like, hey, you completed course two of, of five um here's what the next course is like with a video trailer and the professor talking and getting students excited about it because each time you have a little gap between the courses you have a chance for someone to fall through the cracks and not continue and we were all about a metric we called cpr completion progression rate so how much are students completing courses and then progressing to the next one that was a really important metric for us to watch because it, it led to uh, course completion uh, and I will also note that University of Michigan, a huge partner uh, with Coursera, uh, starting the specializations programs. There's a um, University of Michigan Ross a School of Business all about leading people in teams that Dean DeRue kicks off with an amazing speech. So, you know, just f- for local interest, um, early adopters of specializations and specializations that have done really well have also come from the University of Michigan. Uh, then I think another big sea change that we experienced was... We were really thinking about like a Coursera as like a direct to learner or direct to consumer product. Like we had individual students that were very self motivated. You wouldn't be on Coursera taking courses unless you're sort of trying to level up anyway. But we had a we kind of had some aha moments when different organizations were like, hey, we learned we have you know fifteen or twenty engineers all trying to take this Python for everybody course. Um, can you guys give us a break on, on price? Uh, and we're like, hey, there's an enterprise business in here somewhere, and you know immediately we started to think about what would what would the pitch to organizations be like? So instead of having sort of individual hand raisers all in their individual work pods or cubes taking these courses, when we could go and say, hey, to a large enterprise, if you're trying to offer your Your students' opportunities to level up, how can we do that in mass where it's a part of the company's values? So, especially in Europe, like L'Oreal, giant uh, sort of cosmetic, one of the largest cosmetic companies in the world, they do a lot of investing in training and retraining of their employees. Uh, We're one of our first really big enterprise customers who could say, Hey, we're going to offer this as something like a gym membership, but for your mind, for our entire workforce. There's one end of the spectrum, like make it something everyone can do, and the people who are really motivated will go into it. Uh, And another way other institutions use it is one of the largest banks in India said, hey, our top performers, the people we're really grooming for upper management, this is going to be like a benefit for them. So we can say, hey, you've achieved, you've unlocked it to this level here. We're going to allow you to take these courses um, at Coursera. And and again, think about from an enterprise perspective, those are hundreds and thousands of seats at a time for Coursera learners versus one, two, three. And of course, we had to create a design artifacts of like the landing page for an individual student is going to feel different than the pitch and the marketing and positioning for someone who might run learning and development at a large multinational company, right? Maybe the last way to think about leveling up is still the same story of like, how do we help people improve their lives, not just take courses online, but change their financial outcomes for themselves and their families, but through education is offering fully accredited online degree programs online. So this was kind of the last like large nut for Coursera to crack because if you think about uh, d- degrees, including the people who are taking them on campus, they're regulated, they have to have credentials, there's credentialing and approval process. They're also much more expensive. So what Coursera did is we worked early on with a couple of schools, including University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, to offer a master's in um, computer science with a data science sort of twist. And that's a very hot product or very hot field. And not a lot of people were teaching it yet. So they kind of entered the market at a time when we had a really exciting opportunity um, and a course, or, or sorry, a master's like that could cost thirty or $40,000 in a, you know, terrestrial on-campus world. I don't think there's no way you could charge that much for an online course, but it could certainly be more than like $99 or $300, right? Like now we're in the thousands, right? So I think, you know, just offering that, understanding the value that you can provide you know, each one of those sort of levels up of of scale, right? From individual courses to specializations, specializations to sort of business to business and enterprise, and then all the way up to like degree programs, what we learned is like people don't wanna just think about the their four years of college as the place that they that they did all their learning and now the rest of their life is just like reading books or 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 worse, like not doing anything to upskill yourself, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of continuous lifelong learning I think is now with us and the fields are changing, all the time, so fast. The fields of data science and machine learning and AI—you know—arguably didn't even exist in the professional world, like in mass, you know, eight or ten years ago, right? So, if you think about that fast forward, there's there's going to be a new discipline and a new field that exists five years from now that we don't even know what it's called. And there needs to be a way for people that are post college to to learn it and understand it. And if you think about the framing of the value prop you have for your customers through that long story arc of their life, like I think there's really a lot of opportunity to unlock
1: value now as a third step let's zoom in even closer and get really into the weeds in this section i asked matt to talk very specifically about how they did design sprints who was in the room what types of activities they would do and share some recommendations for resources and books for those of us that want to start doing this in our own startups and our own companies I can't not mention the uh, Google Ventures book called
0: Sprint, you know, how to do a design sprint in five days with um, Jake Knapp. And that's excellent. Whether you're a designer or just, you know, a smart business person or, or a creative person, it's a really great guidebook. And it is literally the the guidebook that is, I think, now our industry standard for design. In, the, in our case, I mean, usually they're done in four or five days. And you what you would want to assemble is um, a product manager or a, like, let's call it a business owner, someone who's not a designer, but but is really thinking about how this is going to be important for the organization. You know, a couple designers, uh, we were really fortunate to have someone who was exceptional at drawing in freehand. And she helped really telling that, you know, drawing the, drawing the student, like, and with little thought, very literal thought bubbles above their head, just like you'd seen like a comic strip, like, what am I thinking, feeling, and doing? for each of these steps, right? I'm considering a program where I'm going to skill up. Then I'm reading a page that tells me about what it could do. And that's, you know, so we've got mock comp web pages up and we're really trying to get the pitch down. Like what what would they want to hear? Would they want to read a syllabus? Would they want to hear from a professor? Would they want to just see the, you know, and bask in the glory of that brand? Is it Stanford? Is it Michigan? Is it Duke, right? Like how much of that is important? and uh you know often we have a researcher and maybe an engineer because what you don't want to do is come out of that program and then just hand some who you know a lot of decisions are made in that you don't want to just hand that to a team and be like okay make this even though you had no say in how it came together so a lot of the engineers that we might have brought into something like that are really there to help get them, give them context for the, the solutions and the outcomes we want because they'll be figuring out exactly how to do it technically. And we're not talking really about technical solutions at that point, but having that person and having another brain in the room to help sort of carry the the flag or the soul of that outcome through the next, you know, Three to six months where you're building it out it's really valuable. The type of activities that we would do would be uh, sort of debate what problems we're solving right up front, making sure we know what questions we're trying to answer over the next, you know, four or five days. You know, we're sort of diverging and coming up with a whole bunch of different ideas at the beginning. So going wide, different people breaking up, maybe two by twos or going into a different room and coming back with a sketch or an idea. Now we're prototyping, right? So the, a really big part of the design sprint is actually making tangible things that customers are going to look at, right? Whether that's InVision prototyping, and there's so many good, cheap uh, prototyping software packages available. Um, the designers might be driving that, you know, or someone else might be if they're if they're comfortable in that way. And then I think usually what we try to do by the end of the week is like a validation phase where we bring in people that might that would fit the criteria of who we're trying to meet as a cus- as a potential customer and then share our prototype or our. Uh, art, let's call them like design artifacts, right? Could be posters, could be pages, could be clickable mobile site, and really just trying to get that that insight back to the team right away because you can tell an amazing amount. And I'd much rather use really concrete designed artifacts, even if the design is crude or unfinished, or you click on something and and it doesn't go anywhere. It, you know, we can say, well, what would you have wanted that to do? What would you expect that to do? It's kind of like a village that you see, like in an old wild west town where like you just make the, you make the facades of all the buildings, but there's like no real general store behind it, but you can get a sense of like what it feels like. Design sprints are, are, are often uh, a way to really accelerate uh, a discovery process and feel like if you got an inkling of a thing there, like kind of like, will this dog hunt
1: or not? In the show notes, I added a link to the book that Matt referred us to. And Matt also provided a picture of the design sprint room at Coursera where they were doing all this work. And I think it really helps just kind of make it feel very real. So definitely check that out. Matt, thanks for coming on and sharing these stories with us. As you know, and I tell you all the time, you're somebody that I'm so glad lives here and is part of this ecosystem. You add a lot of value and bring a really fresh perspective. Before we go, I want you to hear really quickly about another class at the University of Michigan where you can learn and practice design thinking and user experience design.
2: My name is Lana Korlikowski. I teach creativity and design, parentheses, thinking. Um, which is a particular way of viewing the world of problems and how you want to approach solving those problems. So for entrepreneurs it's really interesting because What we focus on in class is having empathy for your users, empathy for the potential customers you might have, and discovering how do you find out what their actual problems are, because that's what you can make money off of, is solving problems. More so than coming up with a great idea and then trying to shove it into a problem space. So we go through a semester-long project where you get to experience all these different design thinking tools, which go into your toolbox of your brain to use later on Uh, in your career, but it gives you lots of different ways of approaching problems and evaluating problems and figuring out what the real problem is, not just the symptom, because that's what really helps the world get better.
1: In the next episode of the podcast, we're going to start talking about marketing, specifically how to use math to do marketing better. Rishi Narayan from Underground Printing and AFC Ann Arbor is going to tell you a really funny story, so I hope you'll join me for that one too.